Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, over the weekend, people received texts from a group called Ontario Strong. Just who are these people? Another woman has come out accusing Donald Trump of sexual assault. His response, she's not my type. Also, with Doug Ford's popularity sinking, can Andrew Scheer maneuver around his decline? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, who is Sue? Now, you may be one of the many Ontarians that uh, received an automated text message over the weekend asking if they agree with the carbon tax uh, or that it should be scrapped, either or. Uh, the message is from Sue. That's what it said. Uh, and a group called Ontario Strong. Now, of course, uh, the uh, press and the media have tried to find something out about this, and they're, they're pretty vague about exactly who they are, what they are, and what they stand for. Uh, some are suggesting it's just a thinly veiled attempt by the Conservative Party to uh, get polling numbers. They deny that, by the way. I want to bring uh, Richard Brennan into the conversation, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years, of course. Uh, uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with hey, us Hey, y'all. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, did you get one of these texts? I did not. I, f- I feel left out. Yeah. Well, we can give them your number. I, I thought Sue would, <laughs> Sue would get a hold of me for sure. Sue, Sue probably is asking, you know, where's Badger? We could use it. <laughs> Listen, you've seen stuff like this in the past, haven't you? Oh, well, yeah. It, I mean, uh, working families kind of started out as a... Uh, I mean, we always knew it was union. It was kind of vague at first, but not for long. And uh, the working families was, uh, was a group that still exists, I think. Uh, was had a lot of influence during during the liberal years in uh, demonizing the Tories, and it used to drive the conservatives insane. I remember that. And, you know, I, whether you agree with the third party uh, influence like this, it remains to be seen, but the point is it exists, and that's what it is. But we all know who, th- who the uh, working families is, or we did. And this is, what bothers me about this is that you know, we know it's linked to a uh, a home phone in, in Belleville, and somebody named Sue, and it, by the way, if they don't come out and tell us who they are, by June 30th, then we'll never know who they are. Because after June 30th, third-party uh, influencers, uh, advertisers, whatever, have to tell Elections Ontario who they are. And you know what they're up to, and and how much money they're spending. But it, at 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 that cutoff, if we if we don't hear from them, we'll, we'll never know exactly who they are. I mean, let let's face it: you can rule out the NDP, and you can rule out the Liberals. Pretty much. Yeah. On this one, anyway. Yeah, on this one. And now, which group it is, though that's that remains to be seen. And that's, I just think that's really kind of. Shady, I guess, for lack of a better expression. Why is there such a Wild West attitude towards third-party advertising until June 30th? I mean, you know, why shouldn't the rules apply even before that? Well, it's a good question. But uh, I think it's, you've got to set some kind of date, I guess. You know, I, I, you, can't, you can't, I don't think, have a law that applies right across, from, you know, from January 1st, you know, you know, December 31st. You know, I don't think you can do that. But the point is, they're saying, okay, June 30th is the cutoff date because then you really start to, you know, people start to pay attention. I don't think so. But anyway, uh, pe- people start to pay attention, and it's, it would be unfair of you not to come out and say who you are prior to, you know, prior to 
this is the federal election that they're really trying to influence, mm-hmm. not the provincial, because that's not for another three years. Yeah. And, and you have to wonder about the, uh, the intent of this, obviously. Um, and it's not the first group, anyway. I think you and I talked about the other ones that were kicking around. Engage uh, is one, oh, uh, Shaping yeah. Canada's Future. I mean, they, they all have these these names that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for four of the people. I mean, that seems, <laughs> that may be the next one that's up there. I guess that's already been taken. Well, but, have the courage of your convictions. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Say, okay, I don't believe in the, you know, the carbon tax, and, and here I am, here's my group, and this is, and, the, and we're going to, uh, we're going to, you know, come out against it strong in advertising or whatever, or online, and say, and say who you are. But why, why the, you know, the secret aspect to it? I, that, that to me is, that to me smacks of uh, something untoward. Well, especially the question that was asked in the text is very much a part of the plank of the of the Conservative Party, and certainly a plank of the of the Progressive Conservative Party here in Ontario. Oh, absolutely. But I can't I can't take that. You know, I think it would be a bridge too far for me to say, well, it is the Conservative Party is behind it. Well, I don't know. No, except that it's a little could shady. It be a, business, a business group? Could it, you know? Could it be a you know a conservative consumer group? Uh, I mean, sure, you can point the fingers, but on the other hand, you don't know. The uh, the mission statement. Uh, Joan Bryden, of course, from the Canadian Press, has done some research on this. Uh, I, I don't know if she got one of the texts or not. Uh, but uh, Ontario strong promises to speak up on the issues that matter to Ontarians and to always stand for the values that created Ontario, uh, which sounds very much like a campaign plank, doesn't it? What's the values that created Ontario? That's a good question. Yeah. What's the values in their mind, you know, small C conservatism or, or you know, small L liberalism? I mean, what, what is it? I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people from various ethnic and and cultural backgrounds uh, created Ontario, I guess, and uh, is that what they mean? I don't. Again, it's just it's so ephemeral. I I don't know. Well, and it also says here, uh, which describes an example of a prosperous, peaceful, diverse, and orderly society for the rest of the world to emulate. Oh, orderly. Orderly. That yeah. Well, like I say, the the the, the wordsmithing here is is interesting to say the least. Well, it is. I mean, but again. Let's let's be honest with people. I mean, people put up with so much crap every day in terms of half truths, no truths, you know, and lies and whatever. And I, they're just tired of it. Put your cards on the table. Tell us who you are. Is this stuff effective? I mean, you've you've been following this. Like oh, you say, absolutely. there've been so many groups. Absolutely, it's effective. There's no question in my mind. I, I know that uh, working families. Uh, when when they were spending millions of dollars to you know, combat any anything to do with the conservative party, it, it absolutely was effective, no question. Because where do they get their money from, though? Well, they get it in the case of unions. They got it from the, you know their union members. Because Working Families Group, as you mentioned, you're right. It was a number of organized labor groups, yeah, uh, absolutely, including I think the Teachers Federation, was it not? Um, probably. But they may I'm not, not sure have been named specifically in that, but you get a pretty good idea about, about generally who was making this one up. This one we don't know too much about yet. 
But uh, in the, I guess the question a lot of people are asking is about the fundraising and where their money comes from. Because uh, as you say, they're spending an awful lot of money, uh, even pre-election. And we've seen these ads on TV, heard them on the radio already. Sure. And we know the Conservative Party is is already started an ad campaign. I haven't seen anything from the Liberals yet, except for these other groups, which are obviously very Liberal-friendly, I guess. At least a couple of them are, anyway. Oh, well, they've got them on both sides. Yeah, I mean, exactly. But it's how they play the game, I guess, now, isn't it? Just oh, using uh, third-party uh, advertising. But, you know, is there any difference? Or is I mean, well, the fact that you won't come out and say who you are, is, there any, is that any different than the Russians in trying to influence elections? Not in my mind, it isn't. Well, that's, that's the I think, the underlying concern here that a lot of people have, is we are inundated with this stuff. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's false. You don't know what uh, what has been embellished. Um you know, I mean, speculatively, I mean, if if this question is asking specifically, do you want the carbon tax scrapped? Uh, that sounds to me an awful lot like a, a ploy to try to get a, some sort of a target audience to say, yeah, these are the people that we want to go after and inundate them with emails and other texts during oh, the campaign. You know, I mean, yeah, if you were if you were silly enough to respond to that, you know, that text. Uh, yeah, well, that targets you right off the bat. That you means know? you're on an email list yeah. someplace. Oh, now. absolutely. You'll 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 start like you get you'll be inundated with uh, with you know propaganda from whatever party, and um, that's that's the way it is. I you know I mean I just think I I know as just an example when I you know turn uh, turn my computer and get Outlook on and there's advertisers bombarding me with something or other. You know I never asked for that. And I did, you know, a lot of people didn't ask for that text to be sent. And it's just another intrusion into your privacy. That's all it is. Like, how do they get your number? Is it just that you're a robocalls? You know, I, I, when, speaking of robocalls, this reminds me of that in a way, because robocalls back, you know, when they were telling people in Guelph that the, the polling booth had moved, et cetera, et cetera, we had no idea where that was coming from. And this is this is basically no different than that, because I to your point about you know I say there has to be an arbitrary date, and they're saying June thirtieth, uh, and I love their rationale for saying yeah that's when people start paying attention. Uh, history has pretty much shown us, and you've covered more elections than anybody else probably. Uh, people don't usually start paying real close attention to elections until about ten days before the election day. That's right. Yeah, it's true. I mean. You know, people will chat about it, parties and that, maybe, you know, a month before it, or even more longer than that. But to, to really sit down and, and, and consider, you know, the various uh, options and, and, and platforms, no, it doesn't happen until just days before an election. Well, especially, and we're going to see it again this year, as we did, I think, in the last federal election, uh, once people get into summertime mode, uh, they, I think usually politics is the furthest thing from their mind. Well, Bill, how many times, let me ask you this, how many times have you had somebody come up to you prior to an election, I mean within a week, maybe a little longer, who should I vote for? I've had tons of people ask me, who who should I vote for? Who's got the best policy? Yeah, exactly. Except, you know, maybe doing a little work yourself. Uh, But, yeah, just that's what it is. People have their lives to live. Summertime, they're at the cottage. They've got tons of other things to think about. You know, daycare for their kids when their kids aren't in school. You know, camps, everything. You name it. And elections are just 
somewhere over the horizon. Yet they maintain that if they spend an awful lot of money now, that they're going to try to change people's minds. And I guess uh, the, the obvious question here is, does it really, or is this just really enforcing st- uh, you know people's mindsets that have already been, been set? Uh, you know, if you're if you if you're opposed to the carbon tax, this is this is obviously you know, music to your ears. If you if you think the carbon tax is the best possible deal, uh, this isn't going to change anybody's mind, is it? I don't. In that case, when you're concentrating on one aspect of the carbon tax. Well, you're either for it or you're against it. That's all there is to it. And I don't think there's many people out there that right now think that, you know, the people who think the carbon tax or some uh, form thereof, who believe it is a good idea, they're not going to change their mind. But the people who are against it are not going to change their mind. But there is, that, there is that in between where people will, you know, will think, well, you know, I do believe in, in climate change and, and but geez, you know, I don't like paying money, you know, more for gasoline or whatever it might cost. So there, there is people to be influenced, but I don't think a great uh, number. But there is our, that group in the middle that could be influenced one way or the other way, but not not as many as you would think. But is it enough to swing an election? No, that remains to be seen. I I, I don't I don't know if this one issue will sway an election. It'll be one of many. You, you don't, you know, you, if you might not like Trudeau or for whatever reason, you just don't like the cut of his jib. You know, there'll be those people out there just say, I don't like that guy or or I, I, don't, I don't like the fact that Shear has dimples and he looks like he's smiling all the time. It comes down to, it comes often down to silly little things like that. Well, it does, and that's why I'm wondering if if somebody is is noticing a shift here. And I, I, I like you and I have talked about in the past. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to polls, uh, but it is rather instructive to note that for the longest time there, well, three four months ago, the Conservatives had a pretty steady four or five point lead in many of the polls. Uh, the Nanos poll that came out today says they're dead even, yeah. uh, which which. I, I, you can read into that what you want, but the, uh, this may be the the clarion call then for for the, you know, the small C conservative groups like this to simply say, "Look, we got to step up our game." Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, it's no different. Again, if you come out and say who you are, I, I have no problem with it. Exactly. Uh, working families did it, and they certainly influenced people. There's no question about that. Uh, I think it was working families. Now I'm. Here I am relying on my memory, but the working family who years ago uh, put put out those ads uh, with with when Ernie Eves was the leader of the uh, Conservative Party, and uh, you know ha- having him dressed up in a you know tuxedo looking like uh, you know Richie Rich, and and I believe it was them, and it did it influenced people. It, it you know they said. Know, who is this guy? Does he represent my interests? You know, you know, wrong. You know, fairly or not, and some would say it's not. They do have an impact, and I believe that you know, and they have every right to do it un- under the rules. But they don't have any right to do it after June 30th to do it if you uh, if you won't admit to who you are. 
Well, we'll see how the, uh, how this rolls out because there's only a few days left in the month now, and we'll see just what kind of a campaign these guys are going to try to mount. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Okay, Bill, take it easy. It's uh, Richard Brennan, of course, uh, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years and many, many elections. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, we were talking about the uh, Ontario election scene here, especially in the light of the fact that we're going to have a vote here in October for the uh, next federal government. And, uh, well, it's going to be battleground Ontario to a large extent. We're going to get into that uh, in the second hour of the program today. But politics is heating up south of the border, too. Uh, the Democrats are having actually their first of a two-night uh, debate among the, I think there's about 45 different candidates now running for that uh, job to the, be the Democratic nominee. I'm being facetious. Just over 20, though. It's ridiculous. But uh, the Republicans, obviously, uh, are concerned about what's going to be happening with their guy. Uh, there was some concern about Donald Trump. There's concern about impeachment. That seems to have died down just a little bit. But the controversy has not died down. Another woman has now come forward accusing the president of sexual assault. His response, she's not my type. Uh, also, the president uh, is starting to play fast and loose with uh, the border situation once again. Joining us to talk about both of these things is uh, Laura Babcock, who's been following these stories. She, of course, is president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, thank you for the time on a busy day. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Is uh, another sexual assault accusation against Donald Trump just white noise to us right now? And I don't mean to belittle the accusation at all, but quite the contrary. But it just seems as if uh, this, this guy's Teflon. This stuff doesn't seem to stick with him. Well, when people decided that they liked Donald Trump way back in the day as a popular culture celebrity, they accepted so much of what he had said on the Howard Stern show and what his persona had been, which was, you know, a Lothario and someone who thought that he could have any woman he wanted. And he said very crude things about women for a very long time. So it's kind of baked in the cake. What was stunning after the Access Hollywood tape is that he would still retain the support of the evangelicals in the United States. I don't think people quite thought that he would keep their support or parts of the Republican Party that stood to family values. But the general population, especially his base, were used to this. This was the showman Trump. And I think that sometimes people take the words that he says and they kind of put it in the category of shtick. And they think, oh, yeah, he said that before, he'll say it again. And I find what that does is it desensitizes and almost normalizes some of this for us. And so these are allegations, Bill, of rape. And they're credible and they are detailed. And he can dismiss it as he has other allegations from women in the past, just saying, really, you think she's good-looking enough for me to bother doing that? It is degrading to women, but it has been part of his shtick if you will, for a very long time. And I don't think that it hurts him with his base, and I don't think that it's going to hurt him with the undecided. They already know what kind of man he is, and I think some people actually get some sort of a sick humor and entertainment value out of it. So this may well fit into the definition uh, in the persona of Donald Trump, as, as many Americans already know. Uh, so maybe no news there, but what does it tell you about the American voter that they're willing to, to basically look past something like this? Well, they've looked at a lot of uh, the people who flipped from Obama support over to Trump in the 2016 election, and they've done a lot of focus groups uh, with independents coming into the 2020 cycle. And one of the things that they've found is that people tend to compartmentalize Trump. They will accept, uh, they don't like his tweets, they don't like his treatment of women, they don't like some of the things that he does in terms of policies, 
but as long as they feel he is a strong defender of the United States, he's putting America first, and the economy continues to be robust, then they will just compartmentalize the things they don't like away. And it's, it's fascinating to watch them in real time make that justification, that rationalization of their support for him. But that's what he has relied on. And so really anyone who's going to be running against Trump is really running against Trump's economy. You can make the argument that it's, you know, it, it started, he's riding the wave from the Obama fix to the economy. But uh, he went on all the Sunday shows this past weekend, Bill, and he just said it's the best economy that the U.S. has ever had. That's factually not true. There were better economic indicators during the Bill Clinton time. Uh, but he goes out and he says it. And as long as people believe that he is the reason for how the economy is doing, they will tend to push these other issues aside for the sake of the pocketbook. As, as we all know, the famous line, it's the economy, stupid. So I think uh, we can't get too distracted with all of Trump's histrionics and the things that he says, because as long as he's selling this narrative that he alone can fix the economy and he alone can keep America safe from immigration, uh, from those aliens that he keeps calling them, he keeps, he keeps dehumanizing people at the southern border, as long as he's going to keep America safe and rich, um, you know, a lot of these other things just simply won't play in as factors to not vote for him. But what happened to the days, and I'm not looking back on these fondly because they were still sexual assault allegations, that would ruin a politician's life? I mean, Gary Hart comes to mind, who a lot of people thought was going to be the Democratic nominee and perhaps the next president after Nixon. Uh, then, of course, there was, uh, you know, the, the infamous uh, situation on the boat. I mean, they've even made a movie of it last year. Uh, because these stories are legendary. Now, all of a sudden, for the most part, it seems to be, so what? What's the big deal? Well, part of what's fueling that, it's interesting, if you listen to Republicans and you say, how is it possible that you as a family values party, you as a, as a father, as a man, as a husband, can accept that you are supporting someone who has multiple credible rape allegations against him? They will point back to Bill Clinton. And they, they sort of say, well, you know what, you guys as the Democrats are the ones who ignored charges against him and continue to support him. Even after impeachment, his popularity went up. Uh, so they kind of say, you know, you guys are the ones who, who broke the seal on this. You're the ones who started this. So we take some sort of, you know, uh, schadenfreude or some sort of comfort in knowing that we're doing it to you. We've got someone in there that you think shouldn't be president because of his behavior, and we're going to ignore it because you ignored Bill Clinton's, the allegations against him. So there's a, there's a, there's a game of, uh, you know, sort of back and forth going on with this as well, Bill, that it makes Trump really able to get away with things, um, both because of, as I said, his personality and, the, and people believing that he's just an entertainer, and a lot of it is just entertainment, and also the fact that the Republicans are feeling like, you know what, fair is fair. Or is it? Or is there a partisan double standard at play here? Because, I mean, uh, the the accusations and, and the, the big brouhaha in the media and other places about Joe Biden uh, when he officially entered the race, that he was a little too touchy-feely and making some women feel uncomfortable, that was a big deal. The accusation uh, that's come forward now from E. Jean Carroll uh, is just, be really, well, aside from one or two uh, media outlets that I've seen, nobody's paying a whole lot of attention to it. Well, there's certainly a, a double standard at play with media coverage. Um, and it's not just around these allegations about sexual assault. I mean, uh, of course, Joe Biden getting a ton of negative coverage because he 
creeps in a little too close to women over the years and touches their shoulders and leans in, um, you know, kind of the creepy grandpa or creepy uncle kind of thing, the fact that that gets more outrage than the fact that there's a sitting president with multiple rape allegations, uh, you know, it's, it's laughable. It's, it reminds me of Hillary Clinton's emails. You know, the media was so determined to show that it did not have a left-wing bias that it sort of overreached, the pendulum swung too far, and they were looking for anything that they could build a narrative uh, that made it look as though they were being equally critical on Hillary Clinton. And the job of the media, as you know, Bill, is not to dole out equal criticism, it's to dole out criticism where it's deserved, uh, not to create false equivalencies, and that was one of the big, big problems with the 2016 media coverage, was they gave equal time to people, even if one side was lying, they gave equal criticism, uh, even if one was more deserving of it than the other. And I think the media coming into 2020 is going to have to take a hard look and say, listen, does Joe Biden creep in on people and people don't like it? Yeah, that's a story. And the Me Too movement, especially coming from a Democratic base where there's a, a fight with the progressives versus the more centrist, yeah, that's an interesting sub-narrative within the Democratic Party. Is it at the level of the kind of allegations that have come out for years and years against Donald Trump? No, it is not, and it should not be treated as the same. Uh, well, I guess that's uh, on the eye of the network beholders, I guess, uh, because depending on who you tune into and who you want to listen to, you're, you're going to get an earful, and you are going to get that bias, I suppose. Uh, I want to ask you about something else, too, that uh, has come to light in the last little while, uh, and that, of course, and you just touched about the southern border a couple of minutes ago, Laura, uh, the Trump White House is now threatening to veto an aid bill for migrant families. Uh, it sounds as if, well, he's never been out of, con or, I guess, uh, election mode. I think you know he registered for re-election uh, the day after he got sworn in, uh, uh, of course, in his inauguration. But he's doubling down on the immigration file, which I guess he figures was one of the things that got him elected in the first place. And again, once he again he is demonizing these people that are coming across the border and saying they're the bad guys, they're the ones that are, are that are ruining our country. Absolutely. In fact, uh, Am Joy or Joy, who has the um, the show Am Joy, just put out a book about what actually got Trump reelected or elected in the first place. And she really did a deep dive. And immigration and the fear around immigration was one of the things, but uh, very powerfully. And she made an interesting point, Bill, which is that he holds those beliefs. So just like he has always held the belief that America is being taken advantage of in terms of trade, he's, he's said that for decades, he has also felt this way about immigration. Uh, and they call it racial insecurity, right? And he exploited that. So he is not only just carrying on with what he found to be successful uh, wedge issues to get elected, he is also carrying on with these hardline immigration policies and these threats of these massive ice raids and everything else because he holds those as true beliefs. And so I, I think we, we have to be careful when we look at some of Trump's more egregious policies. Uh, they're not just simply tactics within a strategy to get reelected. These are things that he has long held. And I think that's why so many people uh, feel emboldened to come out as racist and to come out as white supremacists because they feel as though Trump actually is on side with them on some of this stuff. And I, I think that's something that Americans and the rest of the world have to see clearly. He believes this. He does not want that kind of integration into the country. 
and uh, I don't think he will lessen his outrageous antics down at the border. I think he will only increase them because they got him elected the first time around. Well, and we, we can see him doubling down on that already. Last week with his threat that he was going to uh, organize mass deportations of people that were here illegally. Some of them wait. Well, he says they're here illegally. Uh, the Democrats and others uh, would suggest that they're actually just going through the process that's been set in place for so many years. But but that sort of thing, which obviously is basically putting them in, in the, the crosshairs, I guess, of, of people that are already holding those views, uh, seems to be another attempt for him to simply, to, I guess, to, to fasten his base and to simply solidify that base of people that were there for him the first election. And one of the things that he does, and he does it well, uh, is that he will put forward something outrageous, and he will pull it back at the last minute to look as though he's being reasonable, right? It's, it's, a, it's a game that he plays very deftly, and he's done a number of things like that. You know, he's, he was ready. He had the planes in the air for a war on Iran, but pulled them back with 10 minutes to go. Uh, it's a sign of con- it consolidates his power. It makes him look like, you know, you should continue to try to please him and bargain with him. Uh, so he does that. But at the bottom line of it, to be able to put the children in the kinds of conditions that they're at at the border, when it makes no financial sense, there's some studies, Bill, that say a billion dollars a year could be saved if these children were simply reunited with families and relatives they have in the United States instead of being in these disgusting process of these detention camps. Um, so the, the fact of it is it doesn't even make sense financially. It is purely based on whipping up anti-immigration sentiment, xenophobia. Uh, it, it goes to his core beliefs, and he'd have to hold those beliefs to be able to keep kids in those conditions. I mean, you really have to uh, think that within that administration, there is a cruelty that exists. Uh, and that cruelty, like any organization, good or bad, always comes up. So there's there's still on cruelty that I think Americans need to need to look at clearly with this president. And you'll see the the Democrats campaign heavily on it, uh, heavily on these kids in cages because it's it's an image that will define at least the last two years of his presidency. And I expect them to use it heavily. And I think it defines the image of America around right now. But for him to sustain those conditions, uh, he has got to, on some level, be That's quite concerning. The uh, companion piece to that, obviously, is his, uh, as you've talked about in the past, uh, his ability to uh, to deflect criticism away from himself and onto somebody else. And he's doing it even in this situation. And uh, we saw the horrific pictures uh, at the border uh, just a few months ago of children in cages and, and having, you know, the, the, the U.S. government uh, lawyers uh, just last week arguing that they had no moral responsibility to provide toothbrushes and soap and, and hygienic items for uh, these children that are being held. But he, uh, as on the Sunday shows, as you mentioned, uh, I saw him on with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. He's he's blaming President Obama for all this, saying he started it. I'm just I'm trying to clean it up. He's 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 the good guy, and the other guys are the bad guys, and and people just buy that hook, line, and sinker. Well, he counts on the fact that Americans uh, and maybe Canadians as well. We don't really know our civics. We tend not to be very good on remembering uh, even recent history. We we're so consumed by by the, uh, the zone of our, of our attention being flooded with all kinds of things. Technology has made 
that we have access to information instantly, constantly, and that it's almost like a fire hose coming at us all day long. We can't remember or retain things from even a few years ago because there's too much coming at us. And so Trump relies on that. I mean, less than 20% of Americans have read any of the Mueller report. Uh, and that's why you saw actors last night trying to act it out so Americans would pay attention. Trump knows that if he says Obama put kids in cages, people will go, oh, didn't realize that. Okay, well, at least he's trying to deal with it. I mean, he relies on the fact that people don't follow civics and they don't pay close attention. Uh, and that allows him to gaslight and to lie. Uh, and, of course, as I say, he's got uh, his, his acolytes on Fox News and other places around the country, of course, other uh, broadcast institutions that, that simply follow suit and, and repeat this. And, well, there's a lot of speculation. They actually may be creating some of those uh, those uh, scenarios and, and the president simply uh, repeating what they're saying right now. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle that seems to be developing. Well, he's created an echo chamber, um, or maybe a better word is there's a feedback loop. He definitely works. I think Fox News, uh, at least the, the prime time, the prime time programming is propaganda, and it's often coordinated with the, with the hosts of those shows. He'll even promote the shows. So there's no subtlety in how Trump is manipulating the media and using the narrative, and he's very good at it. He did it again on Sunday. I watched those Sunday show interviews, and I thought to myself, for the, the tiny amount of pushback that he was getting and challenges to the lies he was telling, he got a whole lot of prime airtime to, to put forward these mistruths, these lies, these, these false narratives. Uh, and, and he's winning when he does that. When he gets coverage, these anchors go on as though they're going to challenge him, but they end up spending 25 minutes just letting him sell. And he's an excellent salesperson, and he knows that he's always got to close. And so while other people get on and do these interviews and try to get their message across, you've got Trump, who's absolutely going to close on every single issue every single time. And so, you know, they, it's amazing that still three years into this presidency or into his campaign, at least, the media hasn't caught on to the fact that he's running loops around them. Well, and he's using a, a time-tested uh, methodology, too. Same thing that Bill Barr did when he was uh, before the Senate committee. You know that there's a, a limited amount of time that you're going to be there. You, you kill the clock. You just give long answers and questions back to them. And Trump was doing that on Sunday in these shows. Uh, you know, knowing that there, you know, there's a, a finite amount of time that's going to be allowed for this interview, he wouldn't stop talking. Uh, so the host actually got little to nothing to say. Absolutely. And he always will... Start to he will personally punish the host. Uh, he will insult them if they start to give him too much pushback. You know, he called George uh, uh, Stephanopoulos. What he, he called him a, a little wise guy, right? And he goes, "But that's okay, George. That's what you do." You know, he takes these jabs at them, sort of put them back on their heels, and he's very, very good at it. And and you know, sometimes Bill, when I do your show and others, and I talk about Trump's abilities, people get angry at me, thinking that I am supporting his policies. What I'm, what I'm doing is describing he is a communications expert. He may not seem very bright, but he's, as you mentioned, a master of projection. He projects his own policy failures on others. He projects his own moral failures on others. And he makes it look as though they're the ones that you should sort of point your rage towards. Uh, he's very good at this. And, and the Democrats are all getting on the stage this week. And it will be fascinating to see if there's even one of them who has the same ability on that big crowded debate stage as we saw Donald Trump exhibit when we had that crowded Republican stage back in 
2015-2016. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. As always, Laura, thanks so much for your insight into this today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, one of the big questions uh, still to do with the federal election is uh, the Ford factor. That being Doug Ford, of course, the premier of the province of Ontario. Uh, The uh, Ford fortunes uh, have certainly switched around over the last 12 months. We can tell by the approval ratings uh, that uh, were released just last week where he's, well, plummeted actually to just around 20, 21%. He was around 40%, of course, when he won election uh, last June. Is that going to be a factor in this election coming up, that being the federal election? Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Henry, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again. Love to be with you. This is this is always an interesting uh, dynamic to understand uh, what role, I mean, the, the other politicians and the other levels of government play uh, when it comes to, well, in this case, a federal election. Uh, and the, the premier of a province, and especially a guy who is as popular as Doug Ford, you would think is going to have some sort of an influence on that, which way the, the vote would swing, wouldn't you? Well, um, possibly if he was very as popular as he was a year ago, but as you've pointed out in the intro, he's uh, he's lost half his support, and people are very unhappy with him. And you know, there's many people who believe that, in fact, today the uh, Ontario public would rate uh, Kathleen Wynne as a better premier than Doug Ford. So that, that's a, that's a fantastic drop. Who saw that coming? Yeah, I mean that. Uh, who? Yeah, no, I didn't. I, I knew he was going to have some fall off. It always happens, but. Uh, so quickly, so big, that was amazing. Well, and it, let's juxtapose this current position with the way things were, say, 12 months ago. Uh, you, you got a guy that was newly elected. He had this uh, rocketed to, to start him, really. I mean, you know, I, didn't, I don't think anybody gave him a chance to even win the, the, the party leadership, which he did. Mm. And then yeah. they said, okay, well, there's no way Ontario voters are going to go for that. And, and they did in a big way. And as I mentioned, I think it was about 40% of the vote, uh, a majority government. He was he was the darling of conservatives right across the country at one point. Yeah, for a very short period of time, but he was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was you know showing up at other you know Jason Kenney's campaign. He was over right. in Saskatchewan, uh, right. and Andrew Shear couldn't get enough photo ops with him. I mean, they just figured, hey, maybe some of that's going to rub off on us. That's right. That's what they thought, and uh, now now I think Ford is probably the, uh, in Ontario is uh, J- is the you know the federal conservatives. Andrew Shear's biggest problem. Uh, well, how does a guy like Shear handle this? Uh, for a guy that thought, "Hey, I, I'm just going to not necessarily ride on his coattails, uh, but he's certainly going to ride that that conservative success." And we've seen that happen in subsequent elections in different provinces as well. But the reality here, as you've just pointed out, Henry, is uh, are the numbers that we're dealing with today. Uh, you know, I guess the term that we use these days is branding. Uh, mm-hmm. The conservative brand right now has taken a beating in Ontario. It certainly has, uh, and to get to your question about what the Shear can do, and uh, unfortunately for him, there's just not much time left. And the biggest problem, or biggest opportunity, which I think he has already blown, was to have uh, stars run as uh, as as his candidates. Uh, when uh, when the, we had Harper doing so well and and doing well in Ontario, it wasn't so much Harper was happy was uh, a ple- uh, you know pleasing to the Ontario electorate it was the big stars he had he had John Baird who is now retired mm-hmm. uh, we, we had Jim Flaherty the late Jim Flaherty Jim Flaherty's passed away and a very popular uh, finance minister and of course from Ontario that really set very well with the Ontario public but now that he's gone passed away uh, 
he doesn't have that person again. So he doesn't have the uh, the Ontario stars that uh, Harper had. He just he's not going to have very strong candidates, and he himself. I think is 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 a weak leader by Ontario standards. Yeah, Harper was a, a bit of a surprise, I think, to an awful lot of people. Not so mm-hmm. much that he, he won the election. I think a lot of people saw that coming in two thousand six. But he he went to Ontario to to get the, an awful lot of his cabinet members, and uh, that strategically, I think, was a pretty smart move because, like you say, that a lot of those were veterans of the Mike Harris government, already known to voters, especially here in Ontario. Uh, which gave him a pretty good end when it came to popularity here. And he, he, he usually had to cash that in, I guess, for two or three subsequent elections. That's right. And he, he was very wise in the people he picked. Uh, what I think he realized is that, uh, and it's, and of course, very true today, is that the uh, Conservative Party has, a, is a, has viewed in Ontario as essentially a Western party. Uh, you know, it, not only because all its leaders have come out of the West, but also when you look at, the, uh, at its origins, which we push back to the Alliance Party, and before that, of course, Preston Manning's uh, party, the Reform Party. So it's a Western party. And it has that image, and it's never had uh, it's never had a leader from Ontario, Quebec, or the Atlantic provinces. So, uh, in order to be successful, I think what Harper uh, Harper saw, and and by the way, Harper was uh, went you know grew up in Ontario. He went to yeah. uh, Etobicoke. He was a Etobicoke boy. Uh, went to school there, so he understood Ontario. I have to give we have to give him credit, and he knew that he was not going to be the big uh, you know a big draw in the province. But he had to get those uh, big conservative stars, and he got Baird and, uh, uh, you know, Baird. And, well, I, I was going to say the third one, who's no longer a star, is Tony Clement. But it, at the time, Tony was a very important star. So when you had Baird and you had Flaherty and you had Clement, I mean, those three people were viewed as, you know, they, they were the big you know, the big guns in, in the cabinet. And pe- people in Ontario can say, yeah, well, we don't have the party leader. But, man, we got these three big guns. I mean, they know Ontario. They were very important in uh, the provincial government. They're going to take care of our interests up in Ottawa. And and that worked for Harper. And, of course, that's all falling apart now. One of the other things that uh, that Harper did, and I know we're spending way too much time talking about him because I want to talk about yeah. the new guy, but but yeah. he, he didn't let the opposition define him. I mean, there was an attempt right. by that. You know, they said, this guy's going to he draconian methods, and he's going to cut this and do this. And... Uh, and, you know, the fear-mongering that usually goes on during political campaigns. And he, uh, it didn't work, obviously, and he got elected in '06. But he reversed that and, of course, tried to define uh, the, the subsequent liberal leaders, uh, both uh, Dion and, uh, and Ignatieff. Uh, right. and, and that was very effective. Uh, it's been about a year, a little more than a year, that Andrew Scheer has been in charge of this conservative party. Has he done a good enough job defining who he is and letting uh, Canadian voters, especially Ontario voters, know who this guy is and what he's all about? I don't think so. I just don't think they know who he is. I don't think uh, they have any particular orientation to him. Uh, there's no, and those people who do know him have no emotion towards him. Uh, he's bland, extremely bland. Uh, by uh, you know, even by Ontario standards, he's very bland. Uh, he just, he you know, he just doesn't has not established a an interesting personality, and I, I think that is a, a, a very big problem for him. Well, especially because, I mean, he tries to point to his record and say, well, look, at I was part of that Harper government, but he was the speaker. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're the referee, which is kind of what the speaker is in the House of Commons, right. uh, you don't get much of a chance to, to, to put yourself out there, do you? 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't think many people would remember or recognize that he was the speaker at this point. Uh, the, the speaker has, you know, doesn't have much of a profile, certainly federally. Speakers at the Ontario legislature are a little, little more, but not up in Ottawa. We, I mean, most people don't know who they are unless, uh, you know, unless they are, you know, some, sometimes they do have a little more, you know, uh, clout and speaker. We had one from Kingston uh, under the Liberals, and he, he had a, he had a stronger reputation. But even so, even him. Uh, there, there were, he was, he didn't, was not, you know, most people would not have known who was the speaker at that point. Again, the other element to this, too, and I think we've seen this happen in past elections, Henry, uh, if voters get angry, uh, they don't care if you're a federal politician or a provincial politician, if, if you're a member of the party they're angry at, they're going to take it out on you. Yeah, and especially what we have in here and what, you know, uh, both, uh, you know, politicians and academics have talked about is the balance on uh, uh, pre, you know, balance sort of attitude of the Ontario public. They don't want to have uh, one uh, the same party in Ottawa as they have at Queen's Park in Toronto. They like to have a balance where they play off each other. So right now they've got a, a PC government, uh, sorry, no, yeah, PC government in Ottawa, uh, sorry, in Queen's Park, and they'll have them for the next three years because they have a good majority. And so I just don't think the Ontario people are going to want to have uh, any, you know, any kind of conservative strength in Ottawa. They, they want to balance that with the liberal strength. And so that uh, that that's very hard for uh, for uh, you know for Andrew Shear to go up against and uh, I think that's uh, that's a problem and so you know and especially the fact that the you know the uh, it's it, that would be a problem even if the uh, the PC premier like in days of Bill Davis was uh, popular uh, even even his popularity didn't didn't rush off onto the federal party and with ford who is so terribly unpopular and uh, you know people have just you know they 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 just essentially want to give a kick at the conservative party they can't get it ford directly because they have to wait another three years for or more or less for election but uh, at the provincial level but what they can do is show their anger at the federal level at the conservatives and you know unfortunately i think Shear is the one who's going to you know, feel feel the brunt of their anger. Well, I guess exacerbates that situation, as you say, is Ford's track record over the last year, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen him, you know, tumble down in the in in the approval ratings. Uh, they don't like what he's done. They don't like what he's done with health cuts or uh, education yeah. cuts. They don't like uh, the way they mishandled the autism file, uh, and especially, of course, his claim that look at not one person's going to lose their job when I go through this austerity kick. Uh, and we've seen, quite frankly, that's not happening right now. Right, so, right. so th- it's going to be pretty easy, though, is it not, for the opposition parties, both I guess the Liberals and the NDP, uh, once the the writ comes down and they start campaigning in earnest here, uh, to tie Shear and Ford together uh, and simply say, look, if you vote for these guys to to be your federal government, they're going to do the same thing that this guy's doing here in Ontario. Now, that may or may not be true, but it's a lot easier to do that when there's a track record that you can play with. Absolutely, and I think uh, probably a great many uh, people in Ontario, even though they may not be showing any interest in the federal election yet, because it's the summertime and the formal campaign hasn't been called, but I think that in, 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 the, in the minds of many con, uh, voters already, I think they've already, you know, they've already made that kind of decision. I don't like Ford. They're very angry at him, and it doesn't take much for them to say, I'm not going to, you know, let let uh, let the peace uh, let the conservatives come in in Ottawa. So yeah, so the the energy is all behind the liberals here uh, going into this election, and uh, I, I would expect uh, of the seats that the conservatives won here the last time, they're gonna they're gonna lose some of those. 
Well, and the hardcore conservative supporters are going to be there no matter what, right? Through yeah, thick I, and thin. I mean, they're not going anywhere. They're, 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 he's their guy, and that's their party, and I can understand that. But for him to have won in the fashion that he did last year, there had to be some disenchanted liberal voters who maybe didn't like Kathleen Wynne anymore sure. if they ever did like her, or these people that just kind of swing from one to the other and just thought, no, I'm going to give my support to this to this guy because uh, I'm tired of the current government. After 14 years, they wanted the the liberals out of there. But I, I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse right now, and I think that's reflected in the in these approval ratings. Oh, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of uh, buyer's remorse, particularly among the... Uh, you know, the the more progressive side of the Liberal Party. But I do think uh, about, you know, of that 40, 41 percent or so that uh, that he won, that uh, Ford won last time, about 10 percent of that was what I would call conservative liberals. They're they're liberals, but they're just, you know, they're the, on the conservative side, just, just right around the midpoint of... Uh, you know, of ideology, maybe just a little bit over to the conservative side. And they, they, they essentially, I think, are just uh, really upset with uh, what they've seen. Um, you know, just it's just too much. Uh, you know, there's this constant, you know, you know cutting and, and doing things. And, and I also think the style. I, there, I think we, people look at the policies, and they're very important uh, in, in, in part of Ford's problem. But the style, I mean, all the raucous noise in the legislature and, you know, basically, you know, this clapping and stuff and making all this noise and treating every word that comes out of the premier's mouth as if it's, you know, it's a divine writ that has come down from heaven. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, it, it, it's just, you know, people in Ontario, I just think, find that, you know, just uh, over the top, and and you know, just, it, uh, just unacceptable for for a leader, and uh, I, I, that that has been a big problem for him. He's got to he's got to he's got to worry about his style. Well, and to that point, I mean, for people that are saying, well, what's the big deal? This is only Ontario. Uh, most federal elections, I think, at least in in the recent history, anyway, Henry, are won and lost in Ontario and Quebec, right. aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, with most of this, uh, I mean, we're the province with the uh, largest number of seats. And, uh, you know, if you don't win our Ontario, it's very hard for you to be the government of Canada. Extremely difficult to be the government of Canada. So I, I cannot, you know, I just, I just can't see going in this election how, you know, the Conservatives are even going to increase their seats in Ontario. I just don't see it. The, the Liberals will get a lion's share. I mean, they're going to do very well in, the, in Quebec, I think. And, and actually, in fact, I think they'll do better than they did the last time. And, and even though they can't improve in the Atlantic provinces because they took every seat, and they may actually lose a, you know, a little bit there. But I don't think they're going to lose as much as a lot of people think. So when you, you know, take the, the six provinces, the four you know, Atlantic provinces, Quebec and Ontario, before you hit the West, you know, they're, 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 they're already the, the government. And then that, it, the West will only determine whether they're a minority or majority. It's interesting to know, too, that with the uh, falling approval ratings and, and, of course, I think that mental picture that's probably burned in a lot of people's minds of uh, Ford getting booed at the Raptors rally in Nathan oh, Phillips yes. Square, uh, that uh, when, when the legislature rose for the summer break, they said they weren't coming back until a week after the, uh, the federal election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now everybody's denying this, but you've got to figure that someplace there's a conversation to say, look, at, just lay low. Would you, okay, we, we, we want to try to win this thing, and we really would rather you weren't you know, pushing more of your policy and being out there right now. I, th- I think that's certainly true, but I also think another thing is, you know, there's about, when you look at all the people who work for a party in power in Ontario, there's usually about 600 people when you go through the Premier's office and the Minister's office and the MPP's offices in Toronto, and then you go look at the staff that's in their uh, constituencies, you add up a lot of people, and I think what they want to do is free these people up to uh, campaign for 
the the federal uh, conservative party. Now the interesting thing to me, and I you know be, uh, being around Queens Park is, uh, was for about eleven years when I was running the internship program there. I would often hear uh, conservative staffers saying, "I I don't really you know I'm in here to to work for the provincial party. I'm not you know I really don't want to spend my time working for the federal party." So it may be you know I think uh, the federal the federal conservatives think they're going to have all these people working for them, uh, and maybe Ford did thought of it at one time as well. But I'm not so sure that these people are really, even though they're going to have a little more time on their hands because the legislature won't be in session, I'm not so sure they're going to really want to really work hard for the the federal party because their bread and butter is the uh, is the provincial situation. Their their job is, is a provincial job. It's not a federal job. They don't they have no stake in whether really the federal party wins or loses, but they do have, of course, a big stake whether the provincial party stays in power. Absolutely. Henry Jasek. Henry, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you. Okay. Always enjoy it, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.